Hey guys, welcome to LifeBridge's Sermon Audio Podcast. If you want to watch the full Sunday sermon with video, you can check out our LifeBridge YouTube page, or you can go to our Facebook page. Otherwise, if you like the audio format, then make sure to check out our other sermons on this SoundCloud page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. study this morning in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible with you and or your scripture notebook, uh, I would encourage you to open them up to Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. We have been studying the book of Acts for a couple months now, and we're going to continue that this morning. If you are newer to LifeBridge, this is how we do it every week. We uh, we read from the scriptures every week because you don't need my best ideas every week. You need God's word. And so we work through books of the Bible verse by verse and passage by passage. And so I want to invite you this morning as we do uh, what we do every week, which is stand for the reading of God's word. So please stand with me if you're able as we read Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, today, help us not to make uncomplicated truth complicated help us to see in your word there is one simple gospel that faith in the name of Jesus makes us well this morning God would you glorify your son Jesus in our time together so that we might respond to him with the astonishment and the amazement that he deserves, because there is forgiveness of sins in no other name. So we come to you now in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may remember, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, that the story has gone something like this so far in the book of Acts. Jesus has risen from the dead. He spent 40 days with his disciples between 
his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. Ten days later, after Jesus went to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to come and abide and be within his disciples. And that changed everything. His disciples then were turned loose in the streets of Jerusalem to minister and to preach in Jesus' name with a newfound boldness in power that they had not experienced before because the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to minister and proclaim the gospel in Jesus' name. And now we've read in Acts chapter 3 an incredible story of this new power in action because Peter and John, while going up to the temple to pray at 3 in the afternoon, at the time of the evening sacrifice, come across a crippled man laying in the doorway of the temple asking for money. And because they don't have any money to offer him, they offer him something better, which is healing in the name of Jesus. And last week we read about how God helps the helpless and how through these apostles, the Spirit of God made this man well and raised him not only to walk on his new physical legs, but raised him to new life spiritually. Now we read what happens in the temple just after because it causes quite a scene. Apparently this beggar was a regular at the temple. People were so used to him that they knew who he was. And though he had been laying by the doorway of the temple, crippled from birth for many years, now they see him dancing and leaping into the temple. So the scene opens with a little bit of holy chaos uh, as he skips through the temple and people recognize what's happened. And very quickly, Peter and John find themselves surrounded by a crowd of people wanting to know what's going on and figure out what all the fuss is about. If this happened today, you can rest assured that they probably would have had their phones out filming and documenting this crazy scene in the temple because people are being drawn to the spectacle. Because here's a guy that five minutes before was crippled by a condition that had affected him since his mother's womb and couldn't walk. Now he's leaping and yelling and proclaiming praises to God. And they find him with his arms around Peter and John, happy as can be. And they want to know, how on earth can something like this even be possible. Because on the surface, it looks like that Peter and John must have superpowers because they've done a miracle. They've made this guy healthy again, but Peter tells them right away that they're not the ones with the power to heal. And he preaches a powerful, simple message. And this is the core of his message. Peter preaches a one-point sermon, which you're probably wishing that I would practice this morning, but you're not in luck. I'm sorry. Okay. He preaches a one-point sermon that the power to make this man well came because of faith in the name of Jesus. His thesis statement is simple. Faith made this man well. There is power of salvation by faith in the name of Jesus. Jesus' name alone has the power to save. We might say this is the first time in Scripture that Peter preaches the doctrine of justification by faith, the core of what we believe as followers of Jesus. If you wanted to make the argument that the, the apostles weren't doctrinal men, you'd be wrong, because here in Peter's first sermon in the temple, he preaches on the doctrine of justification by faith. Basically, that people are made right with God by faith in Jesus. We would say this is the greatest and most essential of all doctrines in the church. It is the absolute core of what we believe. Now, to explain to you what the doctrine of justification by faith is, we believe that one can be saved by faith in the name of Jesus Christ alone. 
not our own works. And this being the only essential requirement of salvation, nothing else can or should be added or else the work of Jesus is diminished in its beauty and promise. Let me say that again. We believe that man is made right with God by faith alone because of the grace of God alone and that if you sprinkle in anything else, it dilutes the grace of God and diminishes the work of Jesus on the cross. There is no other essential requirement for salvation. This faith holds the power of salvation not because of the power of the faith nor because of the choice of the one who believes but because of the power of the one in whom faith is placed that being Jesus, so that the one who trusts in his name receives from the fullness of Christ all the benefits of divine grace. To say it differently and maybe a little simpler, faith in Jesus is all someone needs to be saved. It is the only thing necessary to be right with God, and there are zero other qualifiers. That is the core of what it means to believe the gospel. So today, as we talk a little bit about faith and we explore Peter's sermon on the topic of faith, I want you to see three things in the text. First, the nature of faith. What is faith? We use that word all the time. What is faith? Secondly, the object of faith. In what is our faith placed? So the nature of faith, what is it? The object of faith, where do we place it? And the benefits of faith, who qualifies for them? Who gets to receive the benefits of saving faith? And then I want you to ask yourself, as we move through these things today, a simple question. Do I have what the Bible calls Faith. That is the most important question. And here's how I would define faith for you this morning. Faith is believing Jesus and clinging to Jesus. Okay? And both of those are important. I want to propose to you today that faith belongs... <laughs> that faith requires both things. Believing in Jesus and clinging to Jesus. So first, the nature of faith. What do we believe about what faith is? Well, the first detail that we'll notice in verse 11 of the passage today is that this takes place in an area of the temple commonly called Solomon's Colonnade. Basically, Solomon's front porch, or Solomon's portico. This was part of the temple complex that, in the first construction of the temple, was essentially the front porch of Solomon's house. And now, in Herod's temple, which is a much bigger complex than the temple that preceded it, it has been adopted into the temple grounds, and it was basically an open corner of the temple under which rabbis would commonly gather to teach their disciples. Like a good Jewish rabbi, because he was one, Jesus would often do the same with his disciples. And this location in the temple was a place where he and his disciples gathered regularly when they were in Jerusalem for him to expound on the scriptures. The way that this would work is they would go to the temple together, they would hear the readings for the day, and they would participate in the prayers and the sacrifices, and then the rabbis would take their followers and explain the day's scriptures. It was an early form of preaching and teaching while their followers gathered 
around, Jesus did the same thing. In fact, Jesus gave a sermon on this very same topic of faith in this very same place in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, starting in verse 23. I'm going to read for you verses 23 through 25 and verses 37 and 38. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Verse 25, I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. Moving ahead to verse 37, if I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus preached on the topic of faith. He gave a sermon that he was the Messiah and that the works he did provided all the necessary evidence for someone to believe it. His divine authority was being demonstrated in the miracles that he did. And the logical conclusion, according to Jesus, was that he himself was to be believed, that his word was to be believed, that his testimony about himself was to be believed. The proper response to recognizing his authority that he displayed through his works was faith. If you recognize the work of Jesus, the only appropriate response is to believe him in faith. Think about it this way. Seeing a great painting leads to appreciating the painter. Or hearing an amazing song leads to appreciating the musician. Jesus says, if you recognize the works, then recognize what it says about me. It means my testimony is true. And so the only logical conclusion is that he's to be believed. So faith is, first, believing Jesus' identity on the basis of his work. And that's probably pretty familiar to most of us today. That's how we commonly define faith, that faith is believing the words of Jesus about himself, that he is the son of God and the source of salvation. But it's also more than that. Because you'll notice in our story, the man who was healed accepted that Jesus was the source of the power that healed him. Peter told him as much. He said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man said, okay, I believe you. And he stood up. That's the first part of faith. That was the believing part. But that wasn't the only thing that changed. What's he doing at the beginning of the passage? If you go back to verse 11, I'd like you to circle these words that he was holding on to Peter and John. And in the margins, if you're writing in your scripture notebook, write the word clinging, because the word is literally he was grasping onto them. He was clinging onto them like he had them in a bear hug and didn't want to let them go. He's clinging to them. Why is he clinging? Because he's grateful. Because faith wasn't just the belief. It was the response of gratitude and clinging that the healing work produced in him. He's grateful, and his response is one of love. And because Jesus isn't right there next to him to cling onto, and you can imagine if Jesus was there, the man probably would have bear-hugged him too. But because Jesus isn't there physically, he does the next best thing, which is grab Peter and John and pull them in for a bear hug instead. And What an appropriate response, because what could be more appropriate than showing gratitude and love and clinging to the one who is the source of your healing? Because that's faith too. Over and over in the Gospels, we read of people that Jesus healed. 
and he forgave them. And then they clung to him. You'll remember a story of a sinful woman. And Jesus told her her sins were forgiven. And we find her at a dinner party, at a Pharisee's house, weeping over the feet of Jesus, washing his feet with her tears, drying his feet with her hair, and clinging to Jesus. Why? Because if you've been saved by Jesus and you've believed in Jesus, the most natural thing in the world is to cling to Jesus. There's a story in the Gospels of Jesus healing a man who is oppressed by demons after he sends the demons into a herd of pigs. Right? You guys will know this story. And the man afterward, after he's been healed and is in his right mind, and the people find him clothed and, and changed and transformed, you know, he begs Jesus to come with him. Why? Because he wants to cling to the one who is the source of his healing. When Jesus has saved us, the appropriate response of faith is to believe him and to grasp him, to cling to him. What does it mean to have faith? We might say that faith isn't just belief. That's not the way that it's talked about in the Bible. It's not simply that something happens in the realm of our minds or our intellect. Faith, you could write this somewhere in your scripture notebook if you've got it with you, is believing loyalty to Jesus. It is belief in Jesus that leads to walking with Jesus. It's belief in Jesus that leads to obeying Jesus. It's belief in Jesus that leads to a next step of clinging to him desperately, not just with the mind, but with our heart and with our affections. If I asked you this morning, do you believe Jesus? I bet most of the hands in here would go up and say, I believe Jesus. But let me ask you a deeper question. Do you cling to Jesus? Is he precious to you? See, one of the things that we'll often do at the dinner table with our kids, that's, uh, and don't get the picture that, we're, you know, that things always go perfectly. This is, you know, sometimes the stars align and we're able to sit for long enough at the table to have a conversation. It doesn't happen all the time. But one of our kids' favorite things to do is to ask questions. Mom, Dad, ask us a question. Okay. Maybe a trivia question, but oftentimes we'll look up on, you know, on Google or whatever, find a conversation starter. And so we'll ask things like, if you were stuck on a desert island and could only bring three albums with you, what three albums would you want to listen to for the rest of your human existence? Okay. Or another one, if there was a fire and you could only, my son's trying to remind me it was five albums, dad. Thanks, Judah. If there was a fire and you could only save one thing from your house, what would it be? What would you cling to? What's one thing that's precious enough that you would make sure you held on to? That's the way I think about faith. Faith is a desperate clinging to Jesus that when everything else in your life is burning, what is it that you're not willing to let go of? Is it Christ? Is he the one thing in our lives to say that when everything else falls away, I'm willing to let everything else go as long as I can hold to Christ? Faith is a desperate clinging to Jesus. It is believing to Jesus in our minds. 
and it is clinging to Jesus in our hearts. What do you cling to? That's the what of faith. That's the nature of faith. But Peter also wants to be very clear about the object of faith, that Jesus is the only appropriate object of our saving faith, because in verse 12, he goes on to say this, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? Peter takes great clear to anticipate the possible misunderstanding. He recognizes it's possible that people would look at the miracle that happened and assume that it's because Peter and John have some special connection to God that this person was made well. Clearly, they've got to be some sort of holy men or healers, right? Peter says, no, we're ordinary men, and he wants to make it clear to them the healing power to make this man well did not come from humans, and it is a huge mistake to assign to humans what only God can do. People are not an appropriate object of our faith. Only Christ is the appropriate object of our faith. John Calvin said, therefore, there is an error and corruption in this. If we attribute that unto the godliness and power of men, which is proper to God and Christ. It is inappropriate when we place our faith or place as the object of our faith other people that we see as spiritual authorities rather than going to Jesus himself. And yet there are religious systems which assign to ministry leaders, to pastors, or to priests some divine authority so that people have to go to other men in order to get the benefits of God's grace or power. When people assumed that they needed to go to the disciples to get Jesus, they were quick to reprimand them and point them to Jesus because Jesus alone, according to Peter, is the object of our faith. Think about it this way. You'll know in the United States we have what are called patent laws. And so the way that things work is if you want to be successful in business, one of the quickest ways to do it is develop a new product and patent it as soon as possible so that you can claim it for yourself and no one else can use it. Well, guess what? God's grace doesn't work that way. No one has a patent on God's grace. It's open source. You can go directly to Jesus for the benefits of divine grace. Any religious system that says you have to go through another human to get the things that Jesus has promised is founded on a lie. It's anti-gospel. Because faith means we don't go to other humans for what we can get from Christ. And yet there are many ways in which our hearts still tend to do this. One way we do this is by thinking that certain spiritual persons have more pull with God. We tend to think that people more spiritual than us must have more influence or pull with God. Paul was addressing a problem like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he said, For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there's rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. The problem Paul was addressing was division, but what was even more dangerous was that people in the church at Corinth were more shaped by which pastors they listened to than by Jesus himself. We have this thing that goes on in the church where there's an amount of celebrity Christian influence 
and the illusion that some people are Christian experts. And Christians tend to look to certain bands or popular pastors or teachers or podcasts or content or sermons or music, and we go to them for what we should be receiving directly from Christ. Did you know that we can be podcasted, we can be so full of Christian podcasts that we neglect speaking to Christ? We can be so influenced by Christian culture, Christian materials, that it makes us feel spiritual. And of course, these people sound Christian, so they must be good people to listen to, right? And we can become so focused on these things that we neglect going directly to Jesus himself. And there's danger there. Whenever we prop up someone as a spiritual expert and rely on them instead of Jesus, there's danger. Because I grew up listening to Christian music, and do you want to know how many of the bands I listened to growing up are still confessing Christians today? Not many. Probably less than 10%. All those people that I looked at and said, they must be heroes, because look at them on a stage. And because they're on a stage, they must be important. They must know something more about God than I do. And 20 years later, most of them have renounced the faith. How does that happen? Because maybe we shouldn't put faith and trust in people that's deserved by Jesus alone. Maybe we've made a mistake by giving credibility to Christian celebrities and going to other places when what we have in Christ is so much better. We can fill our lives with so many Christian voices while losing closeness and intimacy with Jesus. So be careful who you listen to and be careful of looking to others rather than Christ. Peter wants the crowd to know Jesus is the only one worthy to be the object of our faith, to be trusted as the Messiah the Christ, the deliverer. And then Peter goes on to basically take them to school to show them why they should believe that Jesus was the Messiah and goes on to give them a master class on who Jesus is by using three different titles for Jesus that are meant to make an impact on the crowd. We're going to go on to verse 13, and the question that Peter is answering is why should we believe and cling to this Jesus? He refers to Jesus in three ways. First, that Jesus is God's faithful servant. He says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate. If you're following along in your Bible or notebook, underline and highlight the word servant in verse 13. Now on the surface, this doesn't seem like anything remarkable. If you heard someone describe Jesus as God's servant, you could say, well, lots of people are called servants of God. Moses was God's servant. King David was God's servant. In fact, at times, the whole nation of Israel was called God's servants in a number of places. So what's so special about that? Even Paul calls himself a doulos, a slave, a servant of Christ in other parts of the New Testament. Peter, though, was using a buzzword that would have been extremely significant to the Jewish audience that was present. Here's the deal. Just track with me for a second. There is no one, there is no one passage in the Old Testament where God shares everything that he was planning to do through Jesus. 
That's why authors afterward saw it as a mystery. There's no one place you go to in the Old Testament where God says, here's what the Messiah is going to look like. He's going to do this. It's going to look like this. And you can expect to see this and that. And the other thing, here's what he's going to look like. Here's where he's going to be born. Here's what he's going to accomplish. Substitutionary atonement, justification by faith through grace. There's not one place you can go in the Old Testament to find that all in one place. It's scattered and buried in mysterious ways throughout the Old Testament so that you can only see it now after Jesus has come by looking backward and putting the pieces together. Okay, All that the Jews of their day knew was that God was planning something. There was going to be a chosen one. He was going to be some sort of king. And there was some sort of plan through which he was going to fix the problem of sins. He was going to be a prophet, a redeemer, or deliver all these things. But these things are all scattered so that they didn't know until after the fact exactly how it would look. And one of the themes throughout the Old Testament is this title, Servant. In the prophets, especially Isaiah, God talks about his servant. And it's normally talking about Israel, but then there's this shift in the later chapters of Isaiah where Isaiah starts talking about God's servant not as the nation of Israel, but as a person. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, he says, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. And there are a bunch of these statements that start to pop up in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But here's the thing. The people hadn't quite yet put together the idea that servant and Messiah were describing the same thing. They hadn't made that connection. When Peter says this, the Jews that were gathered there listening would have thought, servant, servant. I've heard that somewhere before. Where is it that I've heard that? That sounds familiar to me. Oh yeah, Isaiah. What does Isaiah say about the servant? And then maybe one of the things that came to mind to them would have been this little chapter in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 11, where Isaiah says this about the servant. He says, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous, there's that word again, servant, will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Isaiah says something that the Jewish people of their day hadn't quite figured out yet, that Isaiah says God's servant comes to suffer and die, and that by doing so, he takes the sins of others upon himself. Now, that's obvious to us now, but before Jesus, no one was thinking this way. They hadn't made the connection between the Messiah that they expected and the suffering servant. Peter is producing new, important theological teaching by connecting those two things. Think about it this way. Imagine a young lady uh, who's looking ahead to getting married someday. And maybe you, uh, if, you are, uh, if you're one of the female members of our congregation, maybe you did something like this when you were younger, but maybe a, a young lady who sits down one day and writes down all the things that she hopes her future husband will be. Okay? He's got to love the Lord, of course. He's got to be tall. He's got to be handsome. He's got to be good with kids and know how to cook, be good at sports, be able to fix stuff. 
Okay? Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about? Did, can any of you relate to this at all? And you sit down and write all these things out. She spends her time wondering about what it will be like to meet him. And so she's built the profile of a perfect husband. And there's never a perfect guy, but as a father of four daughters, I do want to applaud that sort of thing. It's good to have standards, keep them high. And you may not ever find the perfect guy, but you deserve a good man. And the profile is there even if the person hasn't arrived yet. Okay, and that's the key. The profile is there even if the person hasn't arrived yet. That's kind of what the Old Testament does with Jesus. It's building the profile of God's Messiah, all the things that he has to be. It's like, how can anyone meet that standard? How could someone do all of that? But Jesus comes and fits the bill. Now imagine a young lady does all that, and by some stroke of luck, she meets the perfect guy who checks every box on the list, but she refuses to give him the time of day because he doesn't make enough money. He doesn't wear expensive enough clothes. So she doesn't realize that he's the one who fits the bill. Okay, I know that this is starting to sound more like a teen romantic comedy or something, but Peter's making that case here. He's saying, the Old Testament built the profile. You were supposed to know about the servant. The Messiah came. He was here. He met all of the requirements, and you missed him. He checked all the boxes, and you sold him out. He wanted them to see that Jesus was the servant of God that suffers in our place. Jesus is God's servant. The second thing Peter makes the case for to them is that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. In verse 14, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. It's bad enough that they sold out the anointed and chosen servant of God, bad enough that they rejected the Messiah because they didn't recognize him. But what makes it even worse was that the one they sold out was also one that Peter calls the holy and righteous one. Again, these are Old Testament titles. In this case, the first one is pretty simple. Holy One is a title given in the Old Testament to God alone. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, he writes, Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. Peter makes the case, you didn't just kill the servant. You killed God made flesh, the holy one that came to you. And this little one, the, or this other title, the righteous one is a little trickier, but the Old Testament is filled with all sorts of blessings and promises for the righteous person. Verses like Psalm 64 verse 10, which says the righteous one rejoices in the Lord and takes refuge in him. Peter calls Jesus the Holy One of Israel and the Righteous One. There's this idea in the Old Testament that there's all these promises available to the person who's righteous. There's just one problem, that none of us are righteous. The case that Peter's making is that God himself came to become the righteous man that the Old Testament talks about so that all of the blessings and promises of God's law could be given to us. Peter's saying Jesus is the solution because in Jesus, God becomes the righteous man, the one who fulfills all righteousness to meet the requirements of the law so that the blessings of obedience can be open to us. They didn't just kill the Messiah. They killed God himself come to be their righteousness. And the last title he gives to Jesus is that he's the source and author of life. The last accusation Peter makes against the crowd is a doozy. He says, you killed the source of life 
whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. The word used here by Peter means essentially author. It's the same word used in Hebrews 12, which says the founder and perfecter of our faith, or that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter calls Jesus the creator, the author of life, the one that gives life, and that could be understood in two ways. First, because Jesus was with God in the beginning, involved in creation. He's co-creator with God, but also the greater point that Peter wants them to see is that he came as the author of a new life, new creation, eternal life. David Peterson, in his commentary on this passage, said, by virtue of his death and resurrection, Jesus is the originator of new life for others. His life-giving power has just been powerfully illustrated in the restoration of life to the lame man's limbs. Peter wanted them to see what they had done. They had killed not only the Messiah, not only God made flesh to become righteousness for them, they had killed the source of life, the one that came to bring them new life. Because that's the promise of saving faith, is new life. So we've answered the question now, what is faith? What's the object of our faith? The answer is, Jesus is the object of our faith. And lastly, who is this faith for? Who are the benefits of faith for? Who can have it? And the answer, according to Peter, surprisingly, is you. Think about this passage. Peter builds a legal argument from the Old Testament saying, you should have known this, you should have known this, you should have known this, and you killed him. And you would expect that the next thing he says then is, therefore, you're toast. You're done for. You had your chance and you missed it. But instead, what he proclaims to them is the promise of healing by faith in the name of Jesus. Now, here's the most astounding part of this passage. You would imagine this has to bring judgment, right? Because all of these people are directly connected to the responsibility for Jesus' death. And yet, instead, Peter preaches to them a message that they can be healed by faith in the name of Jesus. Think about how radical the gospel of Jesus is. It's even for people who killed Jesus. The promise of healing by faith alone, through grace alone, was even powerful enough to be true for them because Jesus' name brings healing and grace to anyone. I want to, I want to kind of close with this today. We make the doctrine of justification by faith alone way too neat and tidy. If all of that stuff that we went through in the Old Testament today didn't make any sense or was deep or over your head, hear this today. We make faith way too neat and clean and tidy because it's not just for nice people. Think about how incredibly astounding it is that Jesus has said that anyone who trusts him in faith can have forgiveness without qualifiers. You know what that means? It means the gospel promise is not just for nice people. It's for murderers. It's for desperate people. It's for people who have dealt fentanyl. 
It's for smugglers. It's for drug dealers. It's for people who lie and cheat and steal. It's for all the politicians that we resent because they're corrupt and we all know it. It's for porn addicts. It's for burnouts. It's for the young woman who, had, who drank too much this weekend and regrets the decisions she made. It's for mediocre dads and failed husbands, bitter old men. It's for lonely losers. It's for angry blue-haired progressives and peeved-off conservatives. They're all made right with God the same way by clinging to Jesus. It is that simple. It's that radical. There are no qualifiers, which means there are no buts. When Jesus tells us through his word that one can be justified and healed by faith in the name of Jesus Christ alone, that means there are no restrictions, even the ones you place on yourself. Because we want to place on Jesus' promises all of these quietvers that say, yeah, but that's true for others, it's not true for me. Or even more sinfully, that's true for me, but not true for that guy. The gospel of grace through faith is so radically, unbelievably true, which means it's true for us. What is the appropriate response to that sort of a Jesus, the Holy One, made righteous man, the one who came to offer for you a new life. What do we do except cling to him? I want to ask you today, is Jesus that precious to you? Do you cling to him? Let's not make the gospel more complicated than it needs to be. Today, I charge you, believe this one that God has sent and cling to him in faith. Today, if you've never done that before, there's no qualifiers. There's no need to clean yourself up before you accept his promises. There's no need to complete a 12-week discipleship course before you can accept his promises. Today, if you'll place your faith and trust in him, his promises for you, be healed. Be healed. What's stopping you? And for the rest of us, let's do away with this casual stuff. Let's cling to Jesus together. And my favorite part about this passage, I know I always say one more thing, and then it's never one more thing. It's significant that when this man was healed, he didn't have a physical Jesus to cling to. He just had his brothers in faith. Friends, let's cling to Jesus. And then let's turn and look around. And let's cling to one another. What he's given us is precious. He deserves our thanks. Let's pray. Father, what do we say? Lord, as we think about who the gospel's for, for outsiders, failures, people who've made a total wreck of their lives, God, we remember the words of scripture which say, and such were some of you. Lord, that's true of all of us because apart from Christ, we're on the outside, unable to heal ourselves, desperate for help. 
you've chosen through Christ to forgive us, to raise us up to new life. And so, Lord, we cling to you, cling to your precious promises, and we thank you for Jesus. As we come to worship you now, Lord, receive our praises from glad and grateful hearts, and we pray that you would be honored and magnified. Thank you.